and welcome back. My name is Rachel. And I'm Marlo. And today we are going to discuss acting techniques, learn about some of the big players in modern theater, clear up what method acting actually is, as well as hear an interview from a super cool special guest. So we ended our last episode with restoration theater in late 16th century England. Between then and everything that Rachel is going to talk about next, a couple things happened. Well, more than a couple, but a couple that we're going to talk about right now. Popular in Europe in the 16th to 18th centuries, we saw one of the earliest forms of professional theater, Commedia dell'arte. It originated in Italy and is a form of theater characterized by masked types that represent stock characters. These are exaggerated versions of real life characters. The productions were a mix of improv and scripted work. The characters' exits and entrances would be scripted, as well as some of the jokes, but large parts of the action were just left up to the actors. With Commedia dell'arte, women's roles were played by women. This was a practice that we also saw in Restoration Theatre, a practice that in both countries led to the emergence of this idea of the actress as a star or an icon in culture. This style of theatre became popular in France following its blossoming in Italy, and it continued to grow as many countries adopted it and formed it to their liking. Now in France, there was a Frenchman, and obviously you would say this much fancier with a French accent, but for our purposes, he will be Denis Diderot. Fun fact before we begin, Diderot actually introduced the concept of the fourth wall. Neat! How interesting! <laughs> Diderot was one of the first people to begin to really form and share his opinions about how actors were to do their work. In his dramatic essay entitled Paradox of the Actor, we read a dialogue between two speakers in which the first speaker is sharing Diderot's views on acting. He's arguing that the great actor is characterized by a complete absence of any feeling, and that the art of acting consists in displaying the illusion of feeling. His reasoning being that if the actor were to become emotional, he would not be able to play the same part over and over with the same success. The great actor is thus guided by his intelligence and not by his emotion. And once they've studied and conceptualized the part through the power of intelligence, they will be able to give repeat performances successfully, regardless of how they're actually feeling. Which, you know, I guess that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> what do you have to say about that, Rachel? Quite a lot, actually. The problem with Diderot's paradox is that people wanted to prove him wrong, but no one had figured it out how to yet. Going on stage with real emotion could create some truly beautiful moments on stage, but it could be so wildly inconsistent, then what's the point? How can you make emotion consistent? Well, that question was actually answered by two men in the late 1800s in Russia. So we know by looking at art over the eras that there's this pendulum swing from a more experimental metaphysical theater to one that's more realistic and naturalistic. In Russia during the late 1800s, that swing was inching further and further to the naturalistic side of things. Out of that came my friend, your friend, our friend, Mr. Anton Chekhov. Anton Chekhov was a playwright who desired with all of his work to create something that felt real on stage. He used techniques like subtext, naturalistic dialogue, to make the story feel like it could be someone's real life. In life, 
Chekhov states, people don't shoot themselves or hang themselves or fall in love or deliver themselves of clever sayings every minute. They spend most of their time eating, drinking, running after women or men, talking nonsense. It is therefore necessary that it should be shown on stage. Life on the stage should be as it really is, and the people should be as they are. End quote. And Chekhov was massively successful in that right, and influenced tons of plays that came out of the next era. But why I'm specifically mentioning him in this conversation is because of his relationship with Konstantin Stanislavski. Stanislavski was a well-known director, producer, and actor when he went to watch Chekhov's first production, a play called The Seagull, that apparently went so badly that Chekhov threatened to never write a play again. Stanislavski loved it, however, and decided to put the show up at the theater company he co-owned, the Moscow Art Theater. From there, he and Chekhov began a close working relationship. Chekhov's plays gave Stanislavski the perfect playground to try out the acting techniques he was creating. See, he had similar goals to Chekhov. He wanted to find a way that made acting feel like true life. So, during his theater career, he started to form a loose set of acting techniques that were meant to achieve just that. I say loose because he wasn't making it with the intention of making them into some massively influential set of books on acting. He was just doing it for his own students and his own company. So much of his journals would be inconsistent. He would try something one day and then completely change it the next. But he did end up writing three books on his technique. The actor prepares, building a character, and creating a role. These books went on to impact the acting theory of the group theater and was the origin stories of techniques like Strasberg's method acting, the Meisner technique, and the actor's studio. What's really wild is that though Stanislavski's work changed a lot of the 1900s Western theater view on acting, there's actually a lot of debate about what his techniques are in the first place. Like I said, he wasn't the most clear-cut of teachers, and some say that even in his books, he seems to just lightly contradict himself. Also, it's commonly believed that the person who originally translated these books translated them wrong. Let me tell you, I physically winced when I heard that, because it unfortunately means that a lot of the assumptions that theater groups influenced by these books made were wrong. On top of that, many of the Western theater people who use Stanislavski's technique understandably pick, chose, and added to his theories to create their own versions. So our understanding of Stanislavski's techniques are a little muddy. Here are some defining traits of his teachings that we can say with relative certainty are true. First off, objectives. Stanislavski would challenge his students to know their characters and the stories they were telling inside and out. They would examine the actions that their characters would take and try to discern the intent or the objective of those actions. He taught that action is never void of intent, and intent is also nothing on stage if it isn't paired with action. Every time an actor speaks or moves, they're doing it to achieve a goal. It is the actor's responsibility to figure out that goal. Another big part of the Stanislavski's technique is honesty. 
Intent propels action, but if you, the actor, don't have faith in the things that you're doing, then neither will the audience. That honesty requires an intense level of self-confidence and forces you to get out of your head and into your objective. Stanislavski's technique did wonders for creating much more honest and natural performances on stage. And as the technique spread to Europe and the Western world, theater people were excited to get their hands on it and make it their own. So enters the group theater, a group of American theater artists who went the extra mile by creating a whole theater company with the intention of taking Stanislavski's work, examining it, pulling it apart, mashing it together with other techniques, and making art with it. Out of this group came the newest, most innovative works of their time. It was exciting. It was experimental. It was extremely expensive. And it changed a lot of the face of Western acting training. I'm not going to go into too much detail of the group itself. There's a lot to cover. So much that I think we would need an episode of, on it in itself. But I will cover two of the more well-known acting teachers that came out of that period. Sanford Meisner and Lee Strasberg. Let's start with Meisner. Sanford Meisner was a member of the group theater, and while he was still in the company, he became the head of the acting department at Neighborhood Playhouse Theater in New York. Although he acted in some of group theater's most popular works after the company dissolved in 1941, he turned most of his energy to teaching. Meisner was known for being an acting teacher unlike any other. Here's an excerpt from the introduction of his book on acting that describes what it was like being taught by him. We called him Sandy, but it felt daring and dangerous, like ordering a martini at a nightclub when you were 16 and trying to pass for 21. He was too awesome a presence for the familiarity of a first name. I was 18 years old and had blundered into his classes at the neighborhood playhouse in New York. Nothing had prepared me for the intensity of that experience. It wasn't that he was harsh or mean, it was only that he was so frighteningly accurate. You felt he knew every thought, impulse, or feeling in your head, that he had the ability to x-ray your very being, and there was absolutely no place to hide. That sort of intensity influenced every aspect of his teaching. Meisner's techniques adopted a lot of Stanislavski's work, but he expanded on the practical applications of them, specifically in the area of honesty. Meisner knew that humans are taught, some more than others, to be polite, and kept a lot of that honesty that is required of a Stanislavski actor to themselves. So Meisner focused on creating a method of acting that taught actors how to respond truthfully and spontaneously. In fact, his definition of acting starts with just that. Marlo, do you want to share with the people Meisner's definition of acting? I would love to. Meisner's definition of acting is that acting is truthfully and spontaneously playing off the behavior of the other person from moment to moment from your point of view under imaginary circumstances. Thanks, Marlo. Nicely said. One of the ways that Meisner would encourage his students to respond truthfully in the moment is by a technique commonly called repetition. An actor begins repetition by making an observation. The first one that comes to mind, no censoring. And then another actor repeats the phrase, changing the wording so it's in their perspective. For instance, I could say to Marlowe, your hair is brown. 
and she would say, My hair is brown. She changed the wording so that it fit in her perspective. I would then repeat the phrase from my perspective, and so on. The repeated phrase changes when something else happens. Maybe you notice that your partner's socks are green, or your partner starts to pace around the room, or your partner starts to suddenly laugh. The only rule of repetition is that it has to be honest, and you must deal with things moment by moment. After some practice, repetition can be a really excellent tool to stay connected with the actor across from you, stay in the moment, and be honest. All things that are naturally difficult for us, some more than others. Another unique aspect of the Meisner method is emotional preparation. Emotional preparation is the way an actor is able to truthfully convey emotion on stage. But more than that, and I think more importantly, it is a way to make a character's intention important to the actor. When actors use an emotional prep, they take a real relationship in their lives and put it into an imaginary scenario that, if the actor fully accepts, creates genuine emotion and urgency. The great thing about that Meisner's emotional prep is the only limits are your imagination. The only stipulation is there has to be an element of truth. Some aspect of the prep has to be true to the actor. The stronger the element of truth, the stronger the prep will be. The Meister technique is all about relationships. An actor who uses this technique gets everything they need from another person or thing. The emotional prep is about relationships, whether that be with a person, a dream, a fear, or a hope. Repetition helps actor focus on the other person, truly listening and truly responding. Even the character work in Meisner emphasizes the character's relationships. Meisner calls you to get out of your head and focus on the other person or relationship in front of you. So that's Meisner. Let's talk about Strasbourg, shall we? Now, when I say method acting, I'm sure that a lot of our audience has some perception of what that means. There's definitely a popular narrative around method acting, this sort of dangerous, sexy acting technique that causes actors to tear themselves apart for a role. At best, you hear of actors living out in a tent for the whole filming process because that's what the character would do. At the worst, you hear people talk about Heath Ledger's role as the Joker. Although that idea of method did originate from Strasbourg method acting, that is a very sensationalized idea of what method is. Remember, all of these acting methodologies are just pathways. Actors take them and make them their own, and after some time, maybe they even teach students of their own. And then the students take that and teach it to their students, and so on and so on. Just like the group theater took parts of Stanislavski's technique and added to them to make something new, actors do the same to Strasbourg's method. The method acting that media tends to focus on and idealize comes from a misconstrued idea of one section of Strasbourg's method, something called effective memory. To understand effective memory, let's first talk about sense memory. The method is, at its core, focused on giving actors the tools to fully step into the really emotionally driven scenes, or scenes that are more challenging, or just weird. Strasbourg's way of doing this is similar in many ways to emotional prep, except it leans into the belief that every sensation is a gateway to emotion. What we perceive with our physical senses trigger emotional memory. For example, I don't mind ranch dressing on its own, but in my first year of university, I had a chicken and ranch wrap that gave me food poisoning. Because of it, I got very sick. So whenever I have chicken and ranch, 
I feel the emotional response of disgust rise up in me. If it works for taste, why not the other senses? That's the logic behind Lee Strasberg's sense memory. Actors tap into the sensorial details of something emotionally potent and recreate that feeling in their bodies. If the artist is relaxed and willing to go to that place, that should give them a river of emotion that they can then shape. For example, one of the scenes I did in method class, the character I was acting was, frankly, a bit of a bitch. I know that if I tried to act that without some sort of fuel, it would feel fake. So I tapped into the memory of being in a very humid room, something that definitely makes me feel like a bitch. I first felt the sensation in my physical body, smelled the humid air, felt the stickiness of my clothes. Then once I had the sensation going, I could feel the emotion bubble up in me. It may seem weird, but it really works for certain actors. So affective memory is just a more intense version of sense memory, where you recreate sensorially an event in your childhood that was particularly emotionally charged. Different teachers put more or less emphasis on affective memory. Our teacher put a lot more on sense memory. Bottom line, the goal of method is never to force you to stay into that place of high, ugly emotion. It, just like a lot of these tools for emotional honesty, are supposed to give you all you need in the scene to be emotionally authentic, and then you leave it in the scene. It was never supposed to be something you bring home with you. The idea comes from different actors' interpretations of method and effective memory. At the end of the day, your psychological health is always more of a priority than your acting performance. Method can be, and is taught in a way that upholds that idea. So now that we've talked a little bit about Meisner and Method, I think now is a good time to sort of show our cards. Marlo and I both took Method and Meisner as techniques in theatre school together. Because we had experienced this technique, I thought it would be fun to interview Marlo about what her experiences have been with these techniques. So let's jump straight into it. Marlo, what was the most useful thing you learned in your Meisner training? How to really listen. If you've done this training yourself, then you know all about repetition, or if you've been listening to this podcast. It's a really foundational part of Meisner training, and also just acting in general. And it's one of the first exercises that we did in that class. And like Rachel was talking about before, it basically just revolves around really observing and paying attention to your partner and being able to actually tell the truth about what's going on in the moment. So basically, when we use the word listen, we don't just mean listening in the sense of hearing the words the other person is saying. It's being able to take in the whole person, their body, their energy, their intention, to take in everything that they're giving you. Meisner teaches you to get out of your head and put your focus on your partner. And being able to really listen to your partner makes your work more authentic because your behavior is then going to come from what is actually happening in the moment. Bad acting is bad for lots of reasons, but one of them is that people just stop listening and it becomes clear to the audience that the actors aren't paying attention to each other and their behavior doesn't feel natural. It feels fake because it is fabricated in a sense. It's not coming from the present situation. It's just coming from their brain and what they think they should do. The advantage of really listening to your partner is that if you're also listening to yourself and allowing yourself to follow your impulses, your behavior becomes more authentic. So what about method? We started to focus a lot on relaxation in this class. 
It makes a huge difference, but it's something I forget really easily. I tend to rush into things and taking the time to pay attention to what's going on inside me and release some of that before I try and introduce anything new is really important. It kind of helps you to get out of your own way. Oh, and the other thing would be animal work. There's a lot of different things to explain here, but it's basically... You start with observing an animal, and then you'll use a variety of different improvisational rehearsal techniques to slowly adopt the physicality and mannerisms of the animal. It helps craft really distinct, specific characters and gives you a strong foundation to build from. So as you begin to embody the animal, I find that it helps me achieve a different mindset from my own and gives me a new sort of inner thought life that comes from a really genuine place. So instead of having to think, okay, how would this character respond to this and then think of something and then do that thing? It just helps me to respond that way immediately. I don't know if all of that makes sense, but it's a great tool. And if you have questions, feel free to let us know. Yes, please do so. Animal work is super interesting. It was one of my favorite parts of Method as well. So how do you use the two techniques together? Do you pick and choose or do you blend them together? In my mind, I kind of see them as spices or (laughs) cooking techniques. (laughs) Obviously, different things work for different people, just like we all have different taste buds, but you can't cook every kind of meal if you only have salt or if you only have ghost peppers. Different dishes call for different things, just like different scenes require different things from the actor. Sometimes actors can be a little one note, whether they've been typecast or whether they just tend to rely on one thing. But this gets kind of old and it's not interesting to see the same thing again and again. And that one thing won't always work, even if you really like it. It's just good to have all the spices available to you so that you can mix and match as you need. Some scenes won't require as many because it might be something that you naturally feel more connected to, but you can't always rely on that. Making choices about what to use depends a lot on personal preference. Meisner utilizes pieces of real life with more imaginary circumstances, and method is more connecting to real life sensations you've actually experienced. In the end, I think it's more like cooking than baking. It's not exact. It's just about exploring. You might not make the strongest choice right away, but you just have to dive in and start discovering. Is method dangerous? How do you deal with the psychological effects of naturalistic theater? When people hear method, like we said, they often think of, you know, an actor starving themselves to lose 50 pounds in a month or something. But like Rachel said, that's not what method actually is. Method does utilize more realistic experiences. You are connecting to very personal stuff from your own life. But ideally, whatever you are connecting to, you are finding ways to let it out. Like Rachel said, you want to be relaxed enough that all the things that are alive in you are released in the scene. That way, when you're finished, you aren't carrying all of that emotion around with you after. It is helpful to find a bit of a cool down or relaxation ritual for after scenes or shows, because knowing what you need to do to let go of all of that is really important. I don't think it's dangerous to connect to these really strong emotions. We are capable of feeling all of these things, and acting makes you realize just how much we're capable of. But yeah, if you're releasing it in the scene, like I haven't really found it to be an issue, or I haven't noticed any psychological effects. Like when celebrity actors have problems because they went too far in, you know, in too deep, and they disconnect from reality, it seems. I just don't think that's what method is, really. That's just something they chose to do. When I've fully committed to a scene or a role or whatever, I find that I actually feel quite 
cleansed after. It feels really good to go out there and honestly express emotions and just leave it all out there. Why is emotional preparation important? Why can't you just go on and do? I mean, if you can, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) But the emotional preparation is an attempt to add more consistency. Just because something felt really strong one night doesn't mean it's going to be present in you for every show in the run. If you just jump out there and hope for the best, it can be way less consistent. And it can be difficult if you're working with another actor who's bringing something super different every single night. That sort of works in rehearsal when you're exploring, but by the time you've opened, you want the shape of the show to remain and you need to nail things down. Emotional preparation actually helps to keep those choices fresh. Some people think the opposite, like if you plan to use something that the planning makes it stale or stagnant. But I found that emotional preparation of some sort is a way to get the river of emotion flowing. And then you just get to go out there and ride the wave. What's the benefit of subscribing to a method? And do you subscribe to a method? So like I said earlier about the spices, it's just about having things available to you. When you train in different methods... It's just adding tools to your toolbox. Are they all absolutely necessary? No. But just like if you're learning any other skill, it doesn't behoove you just to say, well, that's good enough, you know? It's so important to keep learning. I don't think I would label myself as anything in like a, oh, I'm a Meisner actor or something like that. But I do think having lots of tools is really important. If you were asked to share three things you've learned from Meisner slash method training with an amateur theater artist, what would you tell them? I think number one is actually the definition that I shared earlier, which is truthfully and spontaneously playing off the behavior of the other person from moment to moment from your point of view under imaginary circumstances, because that sort of encapsulates basically everything that we've talked about. It's a really good measuring stick to determine if you're successfully doing your job or not. And you do need some way to start to gauge how things are going. My second thing would be that there is no finish line. That's why those kinds of measuring sticks are important. You need to decide how you're going to define success because perfection or something like that just doesn't make sense and will drive you absolutely crazy. I think I often get caught up in trying to make the best choice or the right choice instead of just diving in and exploring. I'm getting better at that, but it is a lifelong decision to choose to explore instead of trying to make the right choice. Which leads me to the third thing, another lifelong decision. Choose to be present every day, every moment. Don't assume that your default position will be one of presence and awareness. Our culture conditions us to barricade ourselves from each other and to keep ourselves safe, but to see and to listen and to engage fully in your life and in your art, you need to continually unlearn those things and continually choose to be open and receptive and vulnerable. Let people in, let them affect you. It can be uncomfortable, but when you learn to start living in that place, it becomes so freeing. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Yes. Next episode, we will be talking about theater around World War I and what came after that. For now, we're signing off. Talk to you later, cool cats.